Why do our conversations about climate change get so heated, and why do they often feel so unproductive? Welcome to Mind You, a podcast produced by WNIJ that's dedicated to stimulating the intellect and inspiring you to learn something new every day. On today's edition of Mind You, we'll be hearing a Northern Illinois University STEM Cafe lecture on the rhetoric of climate change, featuring NIU's Professor Emeritus, Philip Eubanks. Let's listen. Hey, thank you for coming. Uh, This is uh, a talk where I'm going to tell you about this book that I wrote. And, uh, you know, it must be a pretty good book because it costs $140. Uh, Academic publication has gone crazy. So that's about a dollar a page. It's, it's, it's not a very long book, but in its defense, there are a lot of words on every page. So I could do that. Um, what I did, because I thought no one is going to buy this book. Uh, I wouldn't buy this book at that price. It's, it's out of my range. So what I did is I went to the Sycamore Public Library and I talked to the director and I said, I'd like to donate two books. And would you catalog them in case anyone after hearing me talk would like to get the full story. So it should be cataloged and available through Sycamore, through Interlibrary Loan. It's available in some academic libraries, not NIU, unfortunately. I think the budget didn't help with that, but it's at... uh, it's at the University of Illinois. It's, uh, it's in Taipei. I've looked online. It's, it's all over the place. It's in Australia, but it's not in DeKalb. The, uh, the book is not about science, per se. I'm not a scientist. I'm a, a student of rhetoric. Rhetoric is a study of uh, the study and the art of speaking and writing. It has many definitions, and they're not all compatible. Uh, one that would work very well tonight is, uh, comes from Aristotle, and it's the available means of persuasion. So that's what I'm talking about is persuasion and uh, climate change. I should say that um, I, I have a point of view on this. I, I am not uh, neutral. I've been more neutral in the past than I am now, but I've done a lot of reading and hopefully a lot of learning. And I think climate change is extremely important. I think it's urgent. I think the science is real. And uh, I'm pretty firm on that. However, I think it's also important to say that that's not what I'm doing here tonight. I'm here as an analyst of the discourse surrounding climate change, and we may have people sitting right beside us, friends and neighbors, who don't agree, who think that climate change is not as real as I think it is, or various things. And I, uh, I want to say, if you're sitting here quietly, not telling anybody that you don't agree, I am not here to insult you. I might be here to explain you, but I'm also here to explain me. So this is an analysis. This is not a call to action, at least not mainly a call to action. Even though action would be good with me. Uh, I'm going to give you an overview of the entire book. And uh, I'm going to try to do it in half an hour. Actually, that can't be done. But uh, I'm going to do it anyway. How about that? I'm going to see if this works. Ah, yeah. I thought I'd show you a chart. It explains everything, and I could, I think what I might do is just stand here in silence for 30 minutes and let you figure out the chart, because once you do that, you got the whole thing. I did it in this crazy way for a reason. There's a madness to my method. I thought the tic-tac-toe was a pretty good touch, actually. I amuse myself. Uh, Normally, I would have a slide that has seven bullet points. And it tells you I'm going to talk about seven things. There actually are seven bullet points there. And I'm going to talk about those seven things. But I want to present them to you first in this way so you don't get the wrong idea. This is not a set of bullet points that are 
sequential in any necessary way. They're not hierarchical. One doesn't need to be in place for the other to be understood. But they are very strongly interrelated. Each one affects the other. And I think one way of, of uh, saying it is um, each one makes the other worse. You know, the, the discourse of climate change is a pretty discouraging thing. Uh, I, I will have some moments of hope along the way and at the end, but these are mutually exacerbating factors, and I'm going to go through each one and try to do it in the amount of time allotted, though I don't promise to be exactly on time, but I will try. Okay, the first thing is misjudgments about audience. And I think <clears throat> this is an example of how most of us think about the climate change argument. On one side is science, the other side is denial. I have as a representative of the denial side um, someone who is a famous Twitterer who Twittered the concept of global warming was created by and for the Chinese. And on the other side, there's a, uh, a headline from Mother Jones that says, every insane thing Donald Trump has said about global warming. And we think of argument in this way. We, have, we think of the climate change argument in this way. On one side is science. On the other side is anti-science. And this is a very easy way to think of argument because it is a typical way to think of uh, all argument. Uh, there's a metaphor. Figurative language and thought is one of my areas. There's a metaphor that we use to think about argument, and it's called argument is war. So whenever we talk about argument, we're tempted to think, in fact, we routinely think of, you have one side arguing this point, the other side arguing the opposite point, and the whole aim is to defeat the other side. And it's not the only metaphor we have for argument, but it's a dominant metaphor that we have for argument. And in this case, and maybe in a lot of cases, maybe all cases, I don't know, but at least in this case, it's very uh, destructive. Uh, there's a, a lot of criticism of this way of thinking of argument. You may know the name Deborah Tannen, who uh, wrote a book about uh, argumentation being so dominant and two-sided argumentation being so dominant in our public discourse and very critical of it because everything has two sides and they're always contentious and it's always hostile. And even when... Uh, when things are uh, better off not understood in that way. Uh, we might be better off thinking of arguments something like this. Not two-sided, but at least three parties. And this is much oversimplified even at this, but it helps to at least get to three. Because you have on one side people in the public arguing about science, in favor of science. Other people arguing that the science is wrong or that it's a hoax or something like that. And, but that's not the end of it because most arguments, especially in writing and especially on television and public broadcast, have three parts. You have the two sides. They make sure that we have two sides. It's not by accident that we're presented with two sides very often. And then we have an audience that is um, an audience of deciders. Now, I've used uh, just one guy looking up quizzically at these two sides, but it really is not helpful to think of it as one person. You're one person, but you're part of a collective, and you talk to each other. And when, when you think of more sides, you have a lot more options. So let's think about what that third, third component might be. What would we expect of that component we would expect a lot of things, especially for an argument about fact. Climate science, one of the reasons that, uh, one of the reasons, the main reason that I did a study of this is because I wanted a hard example. I don't come to this because of interest in the science. It has turned out to be interesting, but it's not what brought me to it. What brought me to it was an interest in argumentation and how it works. So I wanted a hard example. Um, something that is polarized like abortion 
it can be a hard example, but the problem with it is I think I understand it very well. Climate change I don't understand very well. Why is it an argument at all? It is about facts. We can either decide or we can't. Well, even in an argument about facts, we have certain conditions to make the argument go well. We expect certain things from the audience. And this is from us. We're the audience. We expect um, the audience to agree on the terms of the debate, or the listener to agree on the, or the reader to agree on the terms of the debate, that facts count. We expect a certain kind of open-mindedness, that if the facts are persuasive, the audience will be persuaded. But in addition to that, we expect a certain kind of skepticism, a healthy skepticism. If your audience is not skeptical, they're not participating. It's part of what is needed in a healthy argumentative situation. So if we imagine not the two sides yelling at each other, they're not really each other's audience. There's no persuasion that is going to go on. If we think about the third component, then we have something that might happen if those conditions are met. I think that those conditions are usually met. There are people who are very firm in their convictions, uh, maybe firm in their misunderstandings or their understandings and they're not going to change their minds. However, I think there is something that is called what I would call a fair-minded skeptic. And they're out there, and I think one way, one way we know that they're out there is because when we look at the public opinion polls, the, the, the research that's done by groups like uh, Pew, uh, acceptance of climate science waxes and wanes. Uh, usually in response to weather events. You know, bad weather makes people uh, believe there's a problem. But you wouldn't have that waxing and waning if people weren't willing to change their minds. So we do have something out there that is um, fair-minded skepticism. And that skepticism can take a lot of forms. It's not all, uh, I think it's a hoax. I think more commonly, I talk to a lot of people about this, it's not uh, systematic always, but when I talk to people about climate change, the people who don't believe it will say, I don't know if there's enough proof. If they say there's enough proof that the earth is warming, they will say, yes, but I don't know how much of that is natural variation or how much of it is human caused. If they accept that, they may say, well, yeah, it's, it's warming and uh, people are causing it, at least in part, but maybe they're exaggerating the dangers. So there's a lot of variation in this third component. And uh, I've framed this as a problem that we misunderstand what audiences are, and that is a problem. But there's a hopeful side to that, that if we understand better, maybe there's something that we can uh, do. So... That's a blank slide. I'm going to fill it up in just a minute. But I will say that we have this audience and we're operating in this uh, area of contention. And it's very difficult to make uh, decisions. Because one thing that is wrong, and this is, this is part of a uh, a quite a number of things that militate against being able to make a good decision. One is that we live in a time of radical skepticism. We have a lot of reasons to be skeptical, but we don't believe much of anything. And uh, I'll give you an example. I showed my students in a graduate class this week a marketing flyer. And it was for a town much like DeKalb, though it wasn't DeKalb. And it, it painted this as a wonderful vacation spot. What what great places to go. Why, I should take a vacation in a town a lot like DeKalb. DeKalb's a great town, but I don't come to DeKalb for a vacation usually. It's usually somewhere else. And I said, do you see any ethical problems here? And they said, no. Why, I said. They're not telling the truth. They're shading the truth. Isn't that a problem? It's not a problem because they don't expect me to believe it. Everybody knows this is marketing. I don't have to believe it. They give what I'm calling a truth discount. We are surrounded with this. 
Uh, truth discounts for everything. Um, also, there's out-and-out -out expectation of fraud. Think of the numbers of memoirs that have been faked, a million little pieces, three cups of tea, or something like that. Um, part of this um, disbelief is encouraged by media reports, particularly in relation to science. The grand narrative of science that gets talked about is usually always progress, always discovery. The scientist says hero. But if you read the paper, if you listen to the radio, if you watch television, um, that's probably my phone. I don't know. It could be. I like that song. I can tell you that. Um, part of the discovery story is everybody was always wrong. So even when it's good news about a scientific story, it's also bad news. I read something a couple years ago when I was uh, researching this book about mouse studies, and it said in the New York Times, uh, mouse studies don't work. This was having to do with uh, septus, sepsis. And uh, it said, uh, we should have known it all along because it takes... Uh, many, many times as much bacteria to kill a mouse as it takes to kill a human being. We should have known it wouldn't work for these studies. Boy, these scientists, they're not very smart. And on top of that, they said, even after this study was done, it was proven uh, very strong, it was a very strong study, they had a very hard time getting it published because the referee said it can't be true. So we have part of the study, part of the situation is the scientists didn't see something that was obvious. Uh, the scientists uh, couldn't get it published when they found the truth. This is a very persistent uh, story in the press. Uh, there was another one in the New York Times, not the New York Times, in the New Yorker a couple of years ago, about the decline effect. This is the problem of replicating uh, experimental studies. You know, you should be able to replicate an experiment. But they were finding that even things you think would be very easily replicable, things like the uh, symmetry of the tail feathers of birds, how could you get more objective than that? You just measure it. They were having trouble uh, replicating it. Of course, we wouldn't know about this if the scientists weren't telling us. Remember that. But Here's a big story in the New Yorker, and it, uh, it has the titillating effect of telling us everything we think is true isn't true. We think science is reliable and objective, but it's not, and that's rhetorically very powerful. This is uh, just a, uh, this is just a, um, I have the wrong slide up. This is, I'll go back, back and forth. This is the uh, <clears throat> quotation from the New Yorker, and uh, I don't ask you to read it. I just ask you to notice the name. Uh, the reporter who wrote it was uh, Jonah Lehrer. Jonah Lehrer got really famous because his book had to be retracted by the publisher because he had faked quotes about Bob Dylan. It's all around us this uh, skepticism about uh, what would be true and what might not be true. Uh, perceptions of scientists, this is not readable, I know. I just couldn't uh, reformat it from the, uh, from the um, form I took it from on the web. But this is a Pew study of how people feel about climate scientists. They poll, and I'll just read a couple of things Client, this is a response to climate scientists understand very well whether climate change is occurring. That's 33% of people. That they understand very well how climate change is occurring. 33% of people think that. Um, research findings are influenced by blank most of the time. 32% of the people say the best available evidence. That's only 32% of the people. So there is a lot of doubt 
about science that I think is egged on by this uh, atmosphere of radical skepticism that we uh, doubt about facts. And of course, this is probably not aided by um, the recent spate of fake news and the accusations of fake news and the attacks on the press that have happened from all quarters, in fact. Something else that is, is quite misunderstood is just how argumentation works. If we can't believe facts, that's one thing. But we think we understand how we ought to go about arguing about facts. And we are uh, children of the Enlightenment, and we think we're, we're very well versed in the scientific method. And the scientific method tells us something like this, and I see a number of scientists here who can correct me, but I think I'll get close. Scientists is guided by the facts. You go out and you gather the facts, and then you take a guess about what might explain those facts. That's a hypothesis. And then you test your hypothesis to see whether you're right about what explains those facts. And if, if what you find doesn't match, you have to change your hypothesis to match the facts, not the other way around. Facts rule. Um, but that's not how we argue most of the time. That's not how everyday argumentation really works. It works, in fact, uh, quite a bit the opposite. Uh, there is a couple of, there are a couple of cognitive scientists, Hugo Mercier and Daniel Sperber, who tell us that we are evolved to argue the opposite way. Because we need to hang on to the things we believe. We can't survive if we don't. So we go around the world with hypotheses, things we don't question, we could call these assumptions, and we don't think of the reasons for them at all. We don't start from facts and reach conclusions. We walk around with conclusions, and we never come up with reasons or support for that until we are challenged. All of a sudden, once we are challenged, then we get very good at arguing. Uh, Jonathan Haidt says, we don't live in the world like scientists. We live in the world like lawyers. We, we defend our assumptions until they can't be defended anymore. And so I thought this would be fun to do a little quiz, but I, I think it might be too far away for people in the back to see what's going on. I've got uh, two figures in blue. They are uh, liberals, they're Democrats. Uh, two figures in red, they are Republicans, they're conservatives. And um, this one here, I'll just point because I don't know how to use the laser very well. That's high science literacy. That's low science literacy. High science literacy and low science literacy. So my question for you is, of those four figures, who is the least likely to be convinced by climate science? Anybody, anybody. Hey, it's like teaching class. I ask a question and there's just dead silence. You know, I've silenced you, yeah. High science literacy? Yeah, that's right. I think it's counterintuitive because it is the Red high science literacy is the least likely to be convinced. It is because of this. Even though a lot of what's written about uh, the climate science debate says the problem is people don't know enough about science. But it works the opposite way. Because we are in the mode of rebuttal in our everyday arguing, if you are already on the side, and if you've taken a side, that climate science is not so, if you have low science literacy, you have a hard time coming up with reasons why it's not so. But if you have high science literacy, you're very good at coming up with reasons that it's not so. 
Where did he get the data? He had about 1,500 participants in this. Uh, yeah. In addition to that, okay, we have so far, we are in a, a doubting facts mode. We're in a way of arguing that is focused on rebuttal. And to make this more difficult, we're in a world where we are in camps, where um, it is not just a disagreement about facts that divides us. It's a way of living. And the, the, the person who I think has put that best is Barbara King Solver in her book, uh, Flight Behavior, which is about a woman in uh, eastern Kentucky who comes into contact with a climate scientist and becomes interested in science and learns all about all of this. And she explains to him, uh, Della Robia Turnbow is her name, the character, why the scientist doesn't understand the people in eastern Kentucky. And what she says is we're on two teams, and she calls them Team Camo and Team Khaki. And she says, I'd say the teams get picked, and then the beliefs get handed around. Team Camo, we get the right to bear arms and John Deere and the canning jars and tough love and taking care of our own. The other wears, I don't know what, something expensive. They get recycling and population control and lattes and as many second chances as anybody wants. So our opinions are formed not just by our view of facts and our doubt about facts, but just basically, fundamentally, who we are. I think Mark Twain put it, well, put it pretty well, and he said... Uh, you tell me where a man gets his corn bone, I'll tell you what his opinions is. And that's pretty much the way it works. And we see this in uh, something, the sorting that goes on in our politics. There was a very good book written a few years ago by Bill Bishop and a uh, partner, who, um, Cushing, who studied uh, the geographical movements of people. We think of gerrymandering as a big problem in politics, but his point was we don't even need gerrymandering. What's happening is we're living near people who agree with us because we share tastes that are not related at all to our opinions, but we live closer together. And one way he demonstrates that I think is quite intriguing is by looking at counties rather than looking at precincts. Those things change, but counties stay the same. So he says, let's look at... Um, landslides in counties. These are elections that uh, are won by 20% or more. That's a landslide. So if we look in 1976, 26% of people lived in a landslide county in the time of the presidential election. By 2004, 48% of voters live in landslide counties, and in 2016, in a close election, the closest, 60.4% of people of voters live in counties that the difference was 20% or more. And what that means is most of us, 60% of us, vote in places where the outcome is never in question. And we have a lot of, fin of affinities with the people who are living there, and that's a, one explanation of why. If we look a little deeper in why this divide is so. Uh, I like to look at figurative language. There are ways of looking at it other than figurative language. Um, Jonathan Haidt has done big, big studies of values and says that uh, people who are on the left-leaning side, the liberals, uh, have certain values, and the conservatives share those values, but they have some in addition that they weight a little heavier. And uh, liberals tend to be more concerned about harm, harm and fairness, worrying about harming someone and uh, treating them unfairly. But conservatives, they agree with that. They're worried about people being treated unfairly and doing harm. But in addition, they're worried about things like uh, loyalty to country, purity, 
moral standards and um, things of that sort. So the way I find it a little easier to make sense of is what metaphors drive your life. Uh, probably the most famous um, researcher in this area is George Lakoff. And he studies metaphors. He wrote a book with uh, Johnson who uh, is called Metaphors We Live By. And he's done many, many studies of guiding metaphors. Uh, so I'm looking at the metaphors that people use when they think about climate change. And they tend to be metaphors of interconnection. So we'll think of someone who's very uh, pro-climate change. This would be someone like Al Gore. When he writes in Earth in the Balance, how things work, he thinks of a pile of sand that piles up and piles up, but each grain of sand is connected to the other till at some point one of them moves in just the wrong way and the entire sand pile collapses. It's an extreme uh, interconnectedness that guides his worldview. We see lots of interconnectedness metaphors on the left-hand side. And uh, you, might, uh, you might remember one from a recent campaign called Stronger Together. It takes a village. Strong interconnection is the metaphor. But on the conservative side, it's not a metaphor so much as a metonymy. It is, if you control the land, you control me. If you control me, you control all of my rights. And um, I have an example. from Senator James Inhofe, who is a big uh, climate skeptic. And he takes it so far as to say, the worry is that regulation is what's needed to uh, combat climate change. He goes so far as to say that controlling carbon is a bureaucrat, bureaucrat's dream. If you control carbon, you control life. That's a very strong metonymy. So those are the things that we are contending with. Uh, I don't know how long I've been talking. Maybe somebody will tell me, but I must be close to, uh, excuse me? I'm doing fine? Well, then I'll show you this one by uh, a comparison of the stories that guide people. Um, you know, people tell the story that this is the turning point in my life and it makes me who I am. And Al Gore always tells the story of when his son was, in a, was hit by a car. And he spends a lot of time by his side in the hospital. And he comes through this very traumatic experience. And what he learns from it is, um, well, I'll just read it because I think people can't see it in the back. I truly believe I was handed not just a second chance, but an obligation to pay attention to what matters and to do my part to protect and safeguard, and to do whatever I can at this moment of danger to try to make sure that what is most precious about God's beautiful earth, its livability for us, our children, future generations, doesn't slip from our hands. All of this interconnection to our children, to future generations, all of that comes from this traumatic experience. We can contrast that with the story that uh, Senator Inhofe tells. And it is uh, heartfelt also, and it drives him to do what he does. But it is quite different. It is this metonymy between myself, the land, my possessions that are on the land, my rights that adhere to having the things that are on the land. He, is, uh, he began, this is before he was elected to any office, he wanted to, he wanted to uh, refurbish a building. And there were codes that said he couldn't. He wanted to move, uh, I think, uh, an outdoor staircase from the front to the back, and he ran up against city codes. And he couldn't do it, and he goes to see whoever it is in the city he needs to see, the city engineer, perhaps, and he's told, well, you can't do it. And he, he wants help, and he says to the guy, won't you do anything to help me? And he says, no, um, that's your problem. And his response to that is not to learn about interconnection. His response was, uh, so I told him that I was going to run for mayor and fire him. 
and I ran for mayor, and I fired him. Well, it's easy for me, I think, to kind of say, what a guy, you know, what, a, what kind of a negative story, but that's because of the point of view that I have. I'm an interconnectionist. But what he thinks he's doing is defending one of the most important values uh, that the conservative side thinks about. And when they think about fairness, they tend to think about proportionality. As are people getting what they haven't earned? Am I being controlled so that I can't have what I ought to have, what I have earned? And this uh, plays very strongly into the uh, fear or dislike of regulation that comes um, with a controlling climate change. Now, I tell you these extreme sides, even though I've said there's such a thing as a fair-minded fair -minded skeptic, and we're, we're, uh, we're looking at the extremes. But the reason I think it's important to look at the extremes is not because everyone is extreme. In fact, most people are not extreme. It's because these are the loudest voices. They're the ones we see. And uh, I think they're like magnetic poles. They're pulling people this way and that way all the time. These are the choices we have. And so I, I think I've, I've tried to give you what we're up against. When I had my slides out of order, one thing I didn't get to was to say that one of the misperceptions we have about uh, participants in the debate is um, others' attitude towards science. When I say there's a fair-minded skeptic, I think something that we should realize is the nature of this debate, part of what I did in, in uh, putting this book together was to look at a lot of what is written in the climate change debate and kind of evaluate um, what is being said, what kinds of things are being said. And it's easy to say and it's common to say the doubters are against science, um, often for religious reasons. You know, we, we've heard statements that uh, tend to indicate that, you know, the Bible says uh, we won't be flooded again, therefore there can't be climate change. Well, these are very um, intriguing statements to say the least, but it doesn't really represent what um, the skeptical side says when they argue. It is argued on the basis of facts, very strongly. It's fact after fact after fact. Some of these facts I think aren't right, but it is the quality of the argument. If you look at both sides, you're reading facts here, and you're reading facts there, and choosing between that. And they are presented in a very uh, science-friendly way, often with statements about the value of the scientific method that any scientist would agree with. They would wish that they had said it themselves. So they often believe what they're defending as science, and the criticism is they say scientists are not adhering to scientific uh, uh, principles that they are um, wooed by money for grants or they're ideological or they are just shoddy in their science they're not good at it and so that's the nature of the of the argument um, so I'm gonna just uh, oh there is one more that I wasn't going to talk about but I was just going to mention that part of the problem part of the reason we have this argumentative um, bind that we're in is because uh, hostile arguments draw a crowd and so it's difficult to overcome that and that's why when we see someone debating on, a, on the uh, climate science side it's not usually a climate scientist it's, it's uh, someone who we know from a public TV so how should we argue about it you know I'm really better at figuring out the problem than figuring out the solution because I, I think it's pretty hard. I think it's pretty hard, but people want to know what can I do. And I do have some thoughts about this, and I, I hope that they're helpful thoughts. If we look at audience differently, if we look at it in this three-part way, I don't think that we are going to get drawn in to the yelling match. Uh, we're going to see that there are a lot of people who we can talk to who... Um, are receptive 
to a factual, calm discussion. The, the polls, the surveys wax and wane as to what people think, but they offer other opportunities and I think they're very interesting. Um, I think, uh, I, I'll have my number wrong here, but I think the latest Pew survey says that 48% of Americans accept that the earth is warming. But that's divided very strongly along partisan lines. Uh, Democrats and liberals, at much higher numbers, believe that it is. Republicans and conservatives at much lower numbers accept that it is. But inside those numbers is an interesting thing. Many on the left-leaning side accept that the earth is warming, but you know, that's not really enough. The, the question that's really at hand is not whether the earth is warming. The question is whether we're causing it. And so what you'll see is even, even in the most liberal people, it'll be something like 75% will say it's warming. How many people say it's caused by humans? Oh, about 80%. So like 20% will say, I'm not sure. Maybe it's just natural cycles. This does us no good. You can't take action about natural cycles. When you look at other groups, much higher in doubt about whether it is human-caused or how much it is human-caused. Well, this could be a, a point of discouragement, but it's also a point of opportunity. Because when people change their minds, it's not usually a 180. It's not the road to Damascus. I was blind, but now I see. I was all wrong. Now I've changed my mind about everything. That's not how people change their minds usually. It's usually we have some point of agreement, and then we change a little farther. And so if you have these people who, many, many people who agree that the earth, the earth is warming, it's not a debate. The debate that is left is whether we're causing it. Well, you know, I think I was kind of in that camp before I started reading for this book. I just didn't know. I don't read about science much. I have other things to read you know, mystery novels, things like that. And I started reading about, about this, and certain facts convinced me. And it wasn't quick. But, for instance, if you have someone, and here, the scientists, please hold your tongue if I say this completely wrong, and tell me later, okay? But I think I, think I read something like this. The reason we're concerned about human-caused or anthropogenic climate change is because we already have figured in natural cycles. And the warming is greater than natural cycles, and this gives us concern. How do they know it's people, though? Could it be something else? You know, could it be house cats? I don't know. It's because they're really smart people, and they look at carbon. I couldn't tell you carbon. I don't know from carbon. I don't know anything about it. But what I read is not all carbon is the same, and they can tell the difference between the kind of carbon that enters the atmosphere naturally and the kind that comes from the things that we do, like driving cars and burning coal and so on like that. Different carbon isotopes is what I read. I was very impressed that I remembered that word. And so they can tell that. And I was pretty impressed when I read about ice cores. Who knew that these scientists will go to very cold places? Who would do that? Go to cold places and drill these long holes of, and they can correlate the carbon record with the temperature record, which they find in very complex ways, ways you would never think looking at ocean sediments, all kinds of ways. And it adds up to something that was able to convince me because I was already receptive to the idea that the earth was warming. I wasn't resistant on that. I just didn't know whether I was causing it. And because I read a lot of it. So I became more and more convinced. So I'm a receptive audience. So I think if we avoid the shouting match, where no one will ever convince anyone. 
we have a much better chance of moving someone a little bit or a lot with common ground. Now, making facts matter to people, this is where the language part comes in. And uh, I refer again to George Lakoff, who's written a lot about framing arguments. Framing uh, is very important. You pay attention to facts when they are put in a context where they make sense to you. And we have seen in most of our lifetime, some of you are very young, but uh, most of us remember some really great framers of arguments. The great communicator, Ronald Reagan. What did he tell us? Uh, we need to get government off of our backs. And taxes are a burden. So once you accept that taxes are a burden and that the government is on our backs, there's only one solution. That's to get the government off our backs and to get rid of taxes that are a burden. Framing matters a great deal. I can name a couple of other ones that I think you'll recognize, and they were very, very persuasive. Think of Martin Luther King, who stood on the Washington Mall and uh, urged us to judge people by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. This is a very strong framing device because we already believe it. We all think, you know, you're beautiful on the outside and the inside. It's what's on the inside that counts, and he tapped into that and framed a lot of facts in those terms. More recently, we've seen a huge change in attitudes toward uh, gay marriage. But isn't it funny that I say gay marriage? Because gay marriage is exactly the phrase that wasn't moving anybody. But you know the one that moved people? and It isn't the only thing that moved people, I think, uh, when people realized that the, uh, the LGBT community wasn't someone they didn't know, it was our sons and daughters, and realized we actually knew people and cared about them. This had something to do with it. But something that really mobilized this argument was a new framing, and it was the phrase, phrase marriage equality. It is hard to think of a more a shared American value than equality. And I think it moved a lot of people. In fact, there's some polling that shows, yes, that is exactly what moved a lot of people, this reframing. So how do we reframe uh, climate change? Well, climate change is a framing device that was come up with by Frank Luntz, who didn't like global warming. It was too scary. And he convinced uh, George W. Bush at the time to quit saying that and to say climate change instead, because it sounds like a natural cycle and much less scary than global warming. Really, I would like to see that go away. I don't know if I can make it go away. <laughs> it is very entrenched. But uh, some people say dangerous climate change. That's helpful. That's too many words, though. Climate disruption is, is good. Uh, something like that would be good. Uh, on the other perspective, what do we say if we are really concerned about the climate? Usually we say, we want to save the planet. And I think a lot of people here would like to save the planet. I'd like to save the planet, but I think it's a very poor framing. If we are trying to talk to the people who agree some with us, but may not share every value, may not be totally focused on the care-harm uh, value where someone far away and their, their misery matters to us so much, some people are worried about other things. And we can frame this in a way I think that would be uh, very useful. Stop saving the planet and start saving our home. And uh, if we want to save our home, we could save our cities. And we could save our farmland. We could save our crops. This is what we're saving in the long run. And you know, it just so happens that the Pope read my book. And I was, I was so glad that he did. Uh, I already liked him, but I like him much more now. Because when he wrote his encyclical on uh, climate change, the phrase he used was not save the planet, was but to save our common home. And then this is the last point. Uh, we're talking about the public debate and it's what can I do? Well, 
we're not most of us part of that public debate. I'm certainly not. And uh, what opportunity do we have to influence anyone? Well, I think this happens organically. You know, it does happen in the media. But, you know, teachers say uh, students learn from people they love. They also change their minds when they talk to people they love or they know. And you're likely to know that fair-minded skeptic. And if you have a couple of facts that might help them see things a little differently, it would be worthwhile. It seems like a small thing, but I do think talking to each other, even if you think you're in complete disagreement, complete agreement, you might find that you're only in agreement that the earth is warming, but you're not in agreement that it is human caused. And you could make some um, progress on that. Pete Seeger is a guy I always liked. And um, he said at some point in his life, uh, somebody asked him if all these songs make any difference. He said, well, I don't know, but I think of it this way. Imagine a seesaw, and it's weighted down by rocks on the other end. Uh, I'm going on the other end, and I'm putting little teaspoons of sand. And they say, well, you're really wasting your time with those teaspoons of sand. You'll never move those rocks. But if I just keep putting more teaspoons, you know, eventually I'll get there, and I think that's how uh, change happens. I'm done talking. Thank you. That was NIU professor emeritus Philip Eubanks giving a STEM Cafe lecture on the rhetoric of climate change. Support for Mind You comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. Find out more at niu.edu. You can find more podcasts of Mind You at wnij.org and on iTunes. Mind You is produced in collaboration with NIU Steamworks by WNIJ, where you learn something new every day.